Um, we left off at uh, 12. We'll go back to verse 11. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. We went over that, talking about living in the moment. Uh, this day, this daily bread. Uh, the next moment, you're not guaranteed. You have this moment. Live in it. Make it important. And it's not saying don't plan. It's not saying don't do what you need to do to be successful. Or, But what it's saying is don't worry about these things. And... Um, First, and we will come further on, probably not today, but uh, a lot of this is about worry. Uh, towards the end here, that word comes up like five, six times. And this is Jesus' first message, and he's addressing us. It's almost like he's not... Uh, there, there comes a point where he turns his attention away from the scribes and Pharisees, which a lot of this was, you know, him telling, telling the people that what they've been teaching you was wrong, what they have been doing is wrong, and this is what's right. Uh, now he's dealing with the people. Um, and this is part of the prayer where we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And, um, of course, that is always uh, a challenge. Verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven, look in the past, our debtors. Um, we pray that with such glee, but uh, I don't know if we actually think about it. Uh, you know, if there's anybody in your life you haven't forgiven, uh, if there's anything, if there's anybody that you feel good when something maybe not horrible happens, but something less pleasant happens, uh, make yourself care. Uh, be careful with it. You know, um, honestly, it, it's what you're doing is you're putting yourself. You're asking God to judge me like I judge other people. And that's a bold move, but it's what he wants to hear, because that's what he's going to do, so you might as well proclaim it. I mean, it's what he's going to do. Be sure be sure you realize what you're praying for here. Uh, well, i got to turn this on. Mark, you're supposed to remind me to turn my timer on. Well, actually, Frank, that's your job. Well, I figured since you remember the other one, you'd remember that. Well, it's, see, it's don't, ever, don't ever assume that I remember anything. Yeah. Because if we've learned anything... It's that I haven't learned anything. Yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the hockey game's fault? Yes, yes. And they're losing. <laughs> uh, to the, and who are they losing to? The devils. See? There you go. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> back, back to where we were. Be sure you realize what you're praying for exactly. What is your petitioning God to do? You're coming before the throne of God, and you're asking him uh, for reciprocity in your life. What I've done... Uh, <laughs> Treat me like I've treated other people. And man, that sort of scares me. In verse 12, we're collectively asking God to deal with our sins by meeting our universal need for forgiveness. There isn't anybody on this planet who doesn't need to pray this prayer every week, every day. Uh, we ask him to do what we cannot do, save us from what we are. Um, but here Jesus places a condition on this prayer that limits its scope. Uh, we ask God to forgive us, but only to the degree that we forgive others for wrongs they have done to us. Uh, this all goes back to, if, if you can see the, I've been bringing this up quite often, but if you could see this connection back to the law and the law. Uh, love your neighbors, you love yourself, and love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you do those two things, this works. Um, there, you have no problems praying this prayer. Uh, before we bring to God what we need of Him, we proclaim that we have first addressed what others need from us. 
and that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, not, in other words, I have been who you want me to be here, Lord. I have been the light that you said I am. You know, uh, I have been the candle on the hill. Uh, not just those who deserve it or request it, but all those who need it. Now, Scripture talks a lot about forgiveness and forgiving others. You know, if your brother asks for forgiveness, how many times should you forgive him? Now, there's a qualifier on that, and Jesus says 70 times 7. But that one has if he asks. But grace goes further than that. Grace is someone who forgives without being asked. One is a condition of law. The other is a condition of grace. And, of course, it's bigger, it's better, and it's what God wants from us. The same grace. By declaring this scripturally accurate condition for forgiveness, when we pray this prayer, we both recognize and proclaim that we fully understand that grace demands grace in return. What was done for you, you must do for others. God doesn't make it optional. This verse is so important that it gets an explanation immediately after the prayer is concluded. So he says this, remember this is all teach us to pray, and he's doing that in a pray in a manner such as this. This is all part of the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, but afterwards, there are certain points in here that he uh, expands upon. So he teaches us the prayer, and then he puts a couple sentences in about what, he's, what he just taught us to do. Because he knows us. Uh, Matthew six fourteen through 15, uh, which is a couple verses from now. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Uh, that should hit all of us pretty hard. That That's serious business. That's Jesus Christ talking. That's, yeah, but how do you get that perfectly? Uh, you know what? Um, I think all you have to do is want to do it. Um, I think when it's your desire of your heart, you know, Lord, help me to do this, then, then you get it. Oh, that was nothing. Uh, it, yeah. Well, number one, knowing that it's a demand. <laughs> knowing that it's not optional. Uh, taking it out of your options and pursuing it. Uh, those who pursue righteousness, he blesses. Um, Luke's version of this uh, from the same account over in Luke, from Luke 6, 36 through 38. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Given, it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed on, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Um, if you want to know what it's going to be like to stand before God which we're all going to do, that Jesus' judgment of everybody, um, when we all stand before Christ, that's going to be the criteria. Uh, take it seriously. Um, we'll take this a bit further. In Matthew 18, 32-35, the thing I mentioned before, uh, Peter asked, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? You know, is, What's the limit on this? Um, Am I just being stupid after a while for forgiving them? You know, am I enabling something? Uh, then he summoned him, his, his Lord to him, and says, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. This is Christ giving um, 
a parable to explain what he wants Peter to do. And it, so, this is the Lord who says, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? If you remember this parable, it was the slave who had the great debt and he begged the, the guy he owed to forgive him. And he did. And then he goes out and grabs the other guy who owes him and treats him horribly. And it says, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to torturers until he would repay all that he owed him. This was the guy he originally had forgiven but wouldn't forgive other people. So that's serious business, handing him over to torturers. This isn't just a, you shouldn't have done that. That's This is big, serious stuff. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Don't just say it. Mean it. Um, let it sink in. Uh, understand how important that is. This is going to affect each and every one of us. Each and every one of us is going to have to deal with this. So the advice is deal with it now instead of having God deal with it then. Uh, Matthew 7, 2. For the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Nothing in Scripture changes that. There's nothing in the Gospels that Paul or Peter or Jude or anybody writes that changes this. Uh, Luke 6, 36-38. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not judge. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, it will be given to you. They will be poured into your lap, a good measure, pressed on, shaken together, running over, for by your standard measure will return to you. Once again, almost the same words, but, you know, that pressed on, shaken together, running over, we always, we always there's actually songs they sing about that. Uh, praise songs about getting a blessing from the Lord, pressed on, and cast your bread upon the water, return to you on every wave, and then they sing that chorus. That's not about that. That This is about, if you do this, if you forgive this isn't about casting your bread on the water. This is about forgiving people. Then God will not only uh, forgive you, he'll bless you. If you be to this world what he is to you, for being the light, there's a blessing in this. And this is real, guys. I mean, when we all meet in heaven, which we're going to do, we're going to remember this. Verse 13, still part of the Lord's Prayer. And this is... This fascinates me. This is what Jesus tells us to pray to God. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, the amen, by the way, was added later it, it, because it marks the end of the prayer so that everybody would know. Now we're after this. We're not praying anymore. We're talking about the prayer. Um I mean, just not like Jesus said, Amen. Uh, but anyway, this ask. Now, I, I have, I'm doing the uh, uh, three of us are preaching on Ash Wednesday. Me, John, and uh, Keith up at Ann Ashley, um, and we're preaching on the temptation of Jesus. And I have the last part, the part where he takes him to the pinnacle, of the temple. But do you realize? that this says we're asking God not to lead us into temptation but right before this sermon happened Jesus 
it says, was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. So we are, Jesus tells us to ask God to see to it that we don't face what he faced because we couldn't handle it. Uh, you know, there's a whole, there's, there's a very powerful reason that he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. It ain't one that you can handle. And it's not something you need to prove. It was something he needed to prove. So, even though Jesus himself was led by God to go into the wilderness to be tempted, it says that, to be tempted. Jesus tells us, don't ask for that. Uh, ask God to keep you from that. I went and did that to help you not to do that. And what it's saying is, Lord, protect me from me. An acknowledgement that there's a temptation that we, or each of us, cannot handle. And God knows what that is, and most likely so does your enemy. So what this is really asking is, it's not asking us to keep protect us from the devil. It's protecting us from ourselves, from the thing that we can't face. Uh, maybe later in your life you'll be able to face it. But God knows right now what you can, what's it say? I won't give you anything you can handle. Uh, I won't go beyond where, no temptation that you can't walk away from, that you can't be victorious in. Uh, that's because he knows what they are and he won't allow them. Uh, he won't allow you to be sifted like wheat, uh, like Judas was. Because you're his. Judas was not. And once again, I give you the dichotomy between Judas and Peter, who both basically did the same thing. And what happened to both of them was completely different because God put a hedge around one and let the other go to who he served. And uh, Satan sifted him like wheat. And in the end, Peter was built up, and Peter ministered to his brothers through his failure. So that's the difference between them. But God wouldn't allow it to happen to a point where Peter would be sifted like wheat. Because he said, Satan came and demanded to sift you like wheat. I interceded. I wouldn't let you be tempted uh, beyond what you could handle. Uh, he's interactive in your life. Temptation comes with free will every time it encounters the will of God. Temptation is born internally, and it's prompted and promoted externally. Our own flesh is the source. Satan only addresses what the flesh already desires, to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, to whoever it wants. I've, we should know that saying by now, because that is our nature. Temptation reveals the truth we tried to hide. It has a purpose. Uh, God limits what speaks to our flesh, so the lesson will not destroy us and sift us like wheat. So why doesn't it just go away? Because it has to be revealed. Uh, if there was no outside temptation to bring out what's on the inside, if there was none, then we could go through our lives pretending that we're fine. That I don't need to address anything. I'm wonderful. You know, I have no sin. Uh, God brings all your sins to the surface individually and in a way that won't destroy you a way that will actually help you because if he was to show it to us all at once it, it would be more than we can handle God tells us that he knows where exactly sanctification ends and sifting begins and he will protect us from ourselves if we seek his righteousness there have been times when I have asked God to allow me to look away from myself because what he was showing me was hard to live with. But 
it was what I needed to see. Uh, note, this prayer begins and ends with a declaration of who God is. Recognize that the one we are praying to has the power and the authority to respond for what is requested in the heart of the prayer. It's, you know, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then we end with this, which, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, and, you know, earth is in heaven. Um, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So, in this short little prayer, it begins with praising God, and it ends with praising God and declarations of who he is. So, every time you come before the throne of God, remember who God is. There's nothing casual about addressing him. Um, as we start every week here, it is an amazing act of grace that he lets us come before his throne. And never forget that. I always try to... I mean, this is what Jesus told us we need to know. Uh, James 1, 12 through 16. The word tells us where temptation comes from. I read this probably once every three or four weeks because we really need to know it. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, which tells us you're going to have trials. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Let me say that again. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Somebody wants to join Benny, welcome. We're on verse... What verse are we on? Oh, the last verse of the Lord's Prayer, verse 13 of chapter 6. And we're reading uh, where temptation comes from, from 1 James. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, what's inside of us. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The circle of life you won't hear on the Lion King. Uh, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That little caveat at the end, it, it tells you something important. This is something that's easy to be deceived about because we don't want to admit it's us. We want to say that it's the devil or other people or my environment. But the truth of the matter is, Adam and Eve were in an absolutely perfect environment with no want, and they fell because they wanted to. It was their own lust that Satan spoke to. Uh, you know, of course he's a problem. But the truth of the matter is, it's us. It has always been us. And by the way, uh, that little line, if you wonder why, uh, and I, I will preach on this on Ash Wednesday, but a little preview of it. If you wonder why Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted after he teaches. He does that. It says the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And then in the Lord's Prayer, he tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Uh, don't lead us like you led Christ to do that. It's, Christ is saying, you know, ask God, you know. The reason we're asking is so that we will realize that God is protecting us from that sort of an onslaught from Satan. Now, you would ask yourself, well, why did God lead him? Well, there's a very important reason that comes right here. It says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. 
Now, before, right before John the Baptist uh, had baptized Jesus and got a voice from heaven, God himself declared, this is my beloved son. Dove comes down and sets on him. He immediately leaves there and goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And in the wilderness, he proves what God said, because why? God cannot be tempted by evil. And the fact that he went through the wilderness, faced every temptation there was, which also does another thing. It gives him an understanding. It says he is aware of every, he has faced every temptation you face. So there's two reasons the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. One, it proves he was God when he walked out unscathed. The declaration that was just made. And so he, he's declared to be God. He proves he's God. He comes out and gives us this teaching right after that. It's, it's a series of events that make sense. His first public teaching comes after he proves he's God by doing the most amazing thing that he did, getting through absolute unbridled temptation. I mean, no filter, uh, and walked away. Uh, but that's why that matters. Um, when lust is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, brings forth death. Um, that's why we die. Uh, I've said it's been a while since I said it, but I'll say it again. Uh, every person that dies has died from the exact same reason: uh, sin. Uh, it may have manifested itself in a different way for different people, uh, but the truth of the matter is, death comes around because of sin. And uh, there was no death before, and once sin is dealt with, there will not be death again. Also, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine through forty. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, at that point in time, man, everything's come culminating. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, everything's going to happen, man. This, We are on the point of the sword right here. And Jesus turns to him and says, this is big time. He knows what everybody's going to do. He knows they're going to run and hide. He knows Peter's going to deny him. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows all these things. And he gives them a line from the Lord's Prayer. He pulls out a line from the Lord's Prayer and says, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Protect me. Lead me not into temptation. Protect me from me. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. This is what I tried to say before, but God says it straight out. But with temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. See, enduring temptation is important. It's part of why you're here. It's how you learn. If it wasn't important, you wouldn't face it. Uh, God is more than capable of making him go away. But he does limit access to you uh, just to the point where there is learning and growth. And a lot of times through pain, uh, through the furnace of affliction, uh, of your own failings. Um, almost everything I've ever repented of, everything that ever brought me closer to God was my own failing. Uh, giving in to temptation, doing something I shouldn't have done, and then looking back at the horror of me um, and saying, wow, I need to be saved. I need God's help. I, I, I have no righteousness of my own. But he knows you. It doesn't say what we are uh, beyond what we are able. It says what you are able. 
So each one of us is different. We're each in a different place. Uh, and God knows that. He knows how far you can go without being sifted like wheat, like Judas was. God will allow it up to that point, but he won't much like... Remember what he said to Peter. He's saying it to you. I have interceded for you. Satan demands to sift you like wheat. I won't let him. That's what this is saying. Because 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Both the ungodly, well, let's once again look at Judas. Did he rescue Judas from temptation? No, he did not. Uh, verse 14. For, if you forgive their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now we are going into an explanation of what was said in the Lord's Prayer. Remember I told you this was coming. The Lord's Prayer is over and we, we don't read this part because this part is an explanation what God said. When I told you to pray in a manner like this, this is what I'm telling you. The prayer has ended. Now Jesus explains some content in the prayer. Forgiveness is important enough to our walk to clarify and expand upon what he said in verse 12. It's so important he gives us notes so that we get it and make sure it sinks home. Forgiveness is not optional. It's mandatory with good things happening to us if we forgive and dire consequences if we fail to forgive. Colossians 3, 12-14 As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You know, there's no mention of an ask for forgiveness here. It's just if someone, if you've got a complaint against someone, if somebody done you dirty, forgive them. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Uh, put it on. That's a choice. You could put on whatever you want. Um... It doesn't come naturally. You have to put it on. You have to choose to do it. It has to be important to you. And the reason it's important to you is because it's important to God. Ephesians 4, uh, 30-32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. So how do we not grieve God? We let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from us, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other to what degree just as god in christ also has forgiven you you want to make god happy you want to not want to keep him from being sad because of you this is what you do verse 15 but if you do not forgive others then your father will not forgive your transgressions that is real there are real and eternal consequences for failing to forgive I don't know if you can be uh, in the kingdom of God and not have that desire to forgive. I don't know if you could have tasted of the grace of God. Uh, this is all before Jesus Christ dies, uh, rises again, and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us in the words here. Um, I don't think a Christian could be at peace uh, not forgiving. Um, because there are real consequences. You can't earn your salvation. But brothers and sisters, you can't earn your condemnation. And that's the truth. 
if you fail to forgive those who seek forgiveness, uh, once again, that's a caveat in some. It's not a caveat here. Uh, you do not have to understand. You don't have an understanding of God's forgiving grace. You don't understand what was done for you. Forgiveness is proof of your salvation. Forgiveness, unforgiveness is a proof of a lack of your salvation. Um, I don't know how somebody who's been forgiven everything cannot forgive. Um, it's the light that glows or doesn't glow. Uh, the candle that's lit or not lit. I'm not saying that you lose salvation, but question if you ever had it. If God, being holy, forgives us, how can we as uh, equal fellow fallen beings not forgive each other? So if holy, sinless God forgives us, what right do I have not to forgive another sinner who is probably even better than me morally? Also, it may speak to what transpires before the judgment seat of Christ, where the unforgiveness of the saved is dealt with. Um, remember, we all sit in that judgment seat of Christ, even Christians, what we did and didn't do, what we should have done, uh, and it all gets dealt with right there and then before we go on to glory. Uh, that's something you want to go as smoothly as possible. Verse 16. Whenever you fast... Assuming, well, once again, he's assuming you fast. Uh, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will uh, be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So once again, he's sort of changing here. We've gone from that topic to this topic. Uh, we often think of fasting as something the church used to do instead of something the church is supposed to do. Uh, I point out that in August and September of 2016, I preached a nine-part series on fasting. Uh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know there was that much, but I found it. Uh, fasting is an act of humility. If you say to everyone, so it's an act of humility, but if you say to everyone, look how humble I'm being, it's not an act of humility anymore, is it? It's an act of pride. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Fasting doesn't make you holy. We fast because we're not holy. And that's what it's all about. Fasting is something between God and you. It's not something between you and other people. In that case, it's simply going hungry for a bad reason. You're not eating for nothing. However, in extreme circumstances, there were instances uh, where national fasting was called. I uh, just need, need to know that. And localized communal fasting was called, where everybody in the nation or everybody in the town or a city fasted. And everybody knew everybody else was fasting. But when everybody else is fasting, you fasting doesn't have any pride attached to it. But generally, fasting is done by individuals for individual reasons between them and God. Fasting is inseparable from prayer. How often do we say it? Prayer and fasting. Those two are linked together. Like pepperoni and pizza. It's part of our endeavor to communicate with God, to have him communicate with us, usually regarding a specific issue or matter. Uh, in a way, fasting is a prayer in and of itself. It is telling God something that you really want him to know that is heavy on your heart. It expresses to God how deeply you feel about an issue, such as grief or repentance. Uh, fasting is an expression of what you're feeling. And once again, uh, 
most of this helps you. I mean, God doesn't really need you to fast. It's good for you. Well, that's what it says next. Fasting is good for you. Cathartic in a way. Not that you're earning God's favor, but that you're expressing that his favor is your only hope. That's what fasting is doing. I have nowhere to turn but to you, God. When David and Bathsheba's child died, David said, Why should I fast now? The child is dead. The matter's concluded. There's nothing I need God to do. There's nothing I need to express. The child's dead. Before the child died, I'll fast. I'll lament. I'll go into mourning. But right now, doesn't. there's no reason. Fasting does not appear to be commanded in the law. I, I can't find it if it's in there. I don't know where it is. But how and why we fast appears to be judged by God. In other words, remember Christ just says, when you fast, so we know there's nothing wrong with it, because he's basically assuming you are and that you should. Um, many fasts are noted by individuals and by nations as a whole, often commemorating something the Lord had done, saying to God, we remember his grace to us. That's another reason. It's just sheer appreciation. And like I said, uh, God doesn't judge whether you fast. He fa If you do choose to fast, why you fast and how you fast, he does judge. Well, Jesus just tells us that. You know, if you do it the wrong way, man. You, you. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all noted as fasting for 40 days. That is an extreme fast. In, in, and in the wilderness, all three of them. Jesus never anointed a fast, yet in the early church did observe the usual national fastings of Israel. Uh, you know, that Israel did to Acts 13.3 and 14.23 both speak to that. That it's what the Jews were doing. Once again, here Jesus doesn't tell us to fast. He says, when we do fast, assuming that we will. Zechariah 7.4.11 7, 4 through 11. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land of the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month of these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? <laughs> See, they had done it for quite a while and it had become quite the thing to do. And so Jesus, God finally shows up and says, uh, We need to talk about your fasting. When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? So not only when you fast, but when you party as part of the celebrations. Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with all the cities around it and in the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? In other words, back in the good old days. Then the Lord of... Let me shut that off because that's going to go off soon. Uh... Saying The Lord of hosts says, Dispensing true justice, practicing kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress widows or orphans, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your heart against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. So, what's he saying? He's saying, you stop doing this, and you fast and celebrate in replace of this. I don't care about that. I care about this. <coughs> prayer and fasting and celebration and the and the holidays are all good if you're doing this <coughs> but if you're not doing this they mean nothing they're actually they're insulting to me if you're not being obedient or trying to be obedient then fasting 
it's something you're doing for you. It has nothing to do with your relationship with me, is what God's saying. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 17. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, go about your life looking good. Don't, don't let... You know what I mean? Don't don't walk around, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting. You know, pity me. The only time the Jews would not do this as a common daily practice was in their time of mourning. Jesus telling us not to maintain our everyday uh, non-fasting appearance to others. Fasting is a denial of the flesh, not a glorification of it. That's what fasting is. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, because men don't need to see it. It's not something between you and men. But by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What will he reward you for? The things that are done in secret. What will, will he reward you for the things you do? No. It goes back to what uh, I think it was Paul that said. You know, I have to do what I'm doing. I have to be a minister of the gospel. I have to preach the word. I don't get a reward for this. This is just pure obedience. This is something I do because God told me to do it. There's no reward for this. Paul knows that what the reward for is doing the things that Jeremiah had just said. Not Jeremiah, was it Ezekiel? Uh, Zechariah. What does God reward you for? Dispensing true justice, practicing kindness, compassion on your brother, not oppressing. Uh, those are the things. They always have been. So in giving to the poor, in prayer, and in fasting, we're able to, those are the three things that Jesus had preached about, you know, before the uh, Lord's Prayer was stuck in there. Uh, all three of those things that the religious leaders were doing wrong, remember he had pointed out, the word says this, you do this, but this is what I want you to do on all three of these subjects. Uh, all these things are done out of the sight of man if we want them to be done in the sight of God. If you want God to see them, then men can't see them. Your giving, your prayer, and your fasting. All three of these things are acts of humility that are polluted by pride to the point that they become detrimental to our eternal reality. If you do them for the wrong reasons. Ideally, we do not do these three things for reward. But we know that doing such things pleases God, and he'll reward both here and there. If men see it, God does not. It's just that simple. If men see it, God doesn't. He don't care about it. And we will end there because that's where we are. Uh, time's up. But we'll pick up on verse 19, which says, Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust are destroyed, and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, that speaks to the why of everything that he just told us not to do. Don't look for rewards here. Don't care about what men think of you. I mean, of course, they should think well of you because you're moral, because you have character, because you do good things, not because you promoted yourself. Uh, and so Christ is making a real point at the end of all this, saying if you want real treasure... Do what I just told you to do. Because the only reward you will get will die with you. And it won't last long. So if you get a reward here, it's very hard to get one there. And the one there is the one that lasts forever. So it really matters. Any questions, comments, or criticisms? Well, if not, let's pray.
Lord, to come before you, and we thank you for your word and, and what you teach us, Lord, in your first sermon. Ah, oh, Lord, uh, if we could just grab part of it and let it just change our lives. But we're asking that all of it sink home and just reside in our hearts. And resides in our heart, it flows out into our lives and into our actions, our words and deeds and thoughts. So that, Lord, we can be part of the cure, part of the light in this dark, dark world, and not part of the darkness. And that through that we can glorify your name in what we think, what we do, and what we say. In Jesus' name, amen.